0: hello uh welcome back to the hp lovecraft book club uh in each episode of this podcast i'll be looking at one uh, one of one of the works of hp lovecraft um and for now we're going through the stories that he wrote in the 1920s uh the early 1920s i mean um and specifically we'll be looking at the quest of iranon uh this is a story i read very late i think it's actually one of the Maybe not the, but it's a, one of the handful of stories that only came through like literally in the last few weeks. So I, I read it a few weeks ago and then I came back in preparation for this podcast and read it two more times. Um, so I have read it a few times, but it was the first time I came across these, this story. Um, and I don't know why I missed it before. I think obviously it's, it's not one of his horror stories. It's, it's, I guess it's a dreamland story. Although I don't think too many of the locations appear in other Dreamland stories, it's not like um, some where, you know, maybe Menar or Ulthar or other places are mentioned. Um, I don't think it shows up in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So it might be, it, it's it's like the Dreamland stories in that it's a, it's it's another fantasy. It's set in some kind of other fantasy world, and it's thematically similar to the Dreamland stories. So I'll put it in that group um but i'm not sure it's strictly ge- in a geographical sense set in the in the dream months, but maybe it is maybe it is maybe we'll i'll I'll see some evidence of that later on but uh this is really it seems to me a story about modernity and lovecraft's response to to modernity um at least at this time of of his writings so it was, it was written uh in one day in on february 28th 1921 it was published in a journal called the Galleon, uh in 1935 um, so not published in as uh, well maybe that is maybe it's in his lifetime just barely yeah that's right he dies in 1937 so uh, in his final years he saw, he saw this in print it would be reprinted in 1939 in Weird Tales um, so he kind of sat on it. it it's most of the stuff he wrote on this time to get published but this is one of the handful of things that didn't um, so anyways my my view on this story uh, just to come up with it is that it is a uh, allegory for modernity and and the kind of the vapid nature of art and culture and and life labor in in modernity so let's let's jump into the story and and talk about it it's not a very long one the audiobook is is 18 minutes or so the story in the Klinger edition less than 10 pages so it's set, at least initially, in the Teleth, which is described as a granite city. And this is contrasted with uh, Aronad, our main character's quest, for a marble city. So it's kind of like the contrast between the modern and the, the classical civilization. The throwback here isn't to like the 18th century the way he, he sometimes does. And certainly he personally had a fondness for 18th century London culture. Uh, but his throwback here is to the classical world it seems so at least aesthetically that's that's where it's at i mean our erinon wears um you know he's got mur in his hair myrrh in his hair chaplets of vine leaves he's got this voice he's he's kind of almost like a uh an orpheus type of character in a way and and of course orpheus does go on a quest um where he uses his songs to 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 quiet down the 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 creatures of hell right to get to his wife Eurydice bring uh, her out of hell uh, here music becomes key in him telling the story as he goes through his on his on his quest on his adventure but anyways he's in a in a granite city and he's just a wanderer there he's a newcomer to this city and he's described right away in these kind of classical um, ter- terms he's youthful vine crowned so he's got the laurels on his head yellow hair glistening with myrrh a purple robe, Torn with briars in the in the mountain Citrix that lie across the a- antique bridge of stone, um, the people of Teloth live in square houses, right? And I think that's uh, contrasted also with the city of of Arya, where Irinan wants to go. It's the city of his youth, and they don't have they have they have more of a classical architecture, and we can describe that architecture when we get to it. But uh, the only notable description of the architecture in Teloth is that it's granite. And square um, it's kind of like the modern it's, it's a very modern field city that's at least how we, I kind of read this um, and he just tells his story in that he says he comes from aria a-i-r-a and he can't remember where the city is or even if it exists he just has memory of it from his his youth he says I'm a singer of songs that I learned in that far city and my calling is to make beauty with the things remembered of childhood. My wealth is in little memories and dreams and hopes that I sing in gardens where the moon is tender and the west wind stirs the lotus buds. So now uh, he's kind of forgotten a lot, but he remembers through dreams and there's a really fuzzy distinction here between memory and dreams. And that's uh, very common in the in the dreamland stories overall. You know, you have in like uh, Cephalus, you have someone who's, you know, the dreams actually become his reality, right? And I think that's, that's common in these types of stories where the dreams become a, a window into a greater truth. In this case, our, our narrator can't differentiate between what really happened and what is just memory of what happened. Now, in response to this story, the people of Taloth just sort of laugh at him, um, quote, for though in the granite city, there's no laughter or song. The stern men sometimes look to the Carthian hills in the spring and think of the lutes of distance onai where the travelers have told. I guess that's a that's kind of a dreamline reference, right? Unai. Sounds familiar. But I, I actually I think it's only in this story too. It's just I read the story a few times, so it sounds sounds familiar too to me. Uh, now just to on a side note, one of the interesting things about the Klinger anthology and one of the uses, especially the second anthology, the one in which this uh, story is included, uh, the Beyond Arkham one, is it does have a, a geographical um Taxonomy. It, it does describe all the places, both real and in the dreamlands, and fantastical on Earth, uh, as well as real places, what stories are mentioned in. So, if you need to look up those things, it's there for you. So, anyways, they have some. The point here that Lovecraft makes is that the people of Teleth have some history, some memory of art, but it doesn't exist in their world. Their world is one of work, it's of labor, it's of toil, and lacking any beauty or song, and therefore, Ironon is a totally foreign. Entity. Um, for instance, th- that night when he's there, um, he sings, and he's only accompanied by. Or the only people who really listen to him are an old man and a blind man. Uh, but uh, but quote, most of the men of Teleth yawned, and some laughed, and some went away to sleep. For Aaron, until nothing useful, singing only of his memories, his dreams, and his hopes. Again, we have a diff- uh, a very a lack of differentiation between memories, dreams, and hopes all grouped together into kind of one thing in the song. Um, but also the most important point here being the people of Teleth don't really care at all about what he has to do. It's just, it's not useful, right? It's like the uh, the horrible person who, who disregards literature as, as not having any use or disregards art at an art museum saying, what's the point of all this stuff? Uh, these kind of soulless people. But this is that whole civilization. Talith as a whole is, is soulless pretty clearly um but nevertheless iran continues to tell his story about his memories his dreams and his descriptions of of aria um, and we get some description of it uh very clearly that It's a marble city Quote, and through the window was the street where the golden lights came and where the shadows danced on the houses of marble. I remember the square of moonlight on the floor. That was not like any other light and the visions that danced in the moonbeams when my mother sang to me. A lot of more uh, astronomical observations, though. a lot about the moon and the sun, uh, the flowers, uh, and, and not so much on the physical construction of this city. It is described as a city of marble and beryl, and it's described as beautiful as well. With lots of groves, it's kind of a classical city, like an ancient Greek city, is is the way it's sort of depicted here. Uh, it's got some golden domes and painted walls. Again, a very Mediterranean kind of uh, kind of image. Green gardens with Coralian pools and crystal fountains. Um, so all of this this beautiful setting, this beautiful classical setting, uh, Hellenic, if you want, uh, certainly Mediterranean, is contrasted with just the granite utilitarian, boring. Uh, buildings of, of stone and granite that are in Teloth. So we are also get uh, a clear description of his quest here, that uh, he was exiled when he was young. Although, remember, we, we don't really have, he doesn't really have clear memory of any of this stuff. It's kind of come from his dreams and his memories, and he can't differentiate them anymore. So he has memory of being a, the son of a king, uh, but exiled and decreed by fate to come back. And he's been searching ever since for this this return. So he's kind of the exiled prince. Uh, obviously, that's a common motif in in literature that we have seen many times uh, in other stories, like African oral traditions, for instance. Often tell the story of the exiled prince. Um, but, anyways, uh, really, really good section. That really the first couple pages here really set the difference between Arya and teloth and also establish the type of person iron is as well as a contrast between the blandness the soullessness of teloth and Arya's kind of embrace of culture and beauty so then we get uh the, the people of Teloth come to him and said okay whatever your quest is we don't really care if you're going to stay here you're going to have to get a job because we all work we all toil and they say well a cobbler needs an apprentice so Athok the cobbler will take you in. You can be his apprentice. And now we get a really fascinating section that that kind of is the middle part of the story in which we get a little bit of a dissertation on the work ethic. Um, And so Ironon, when he hears he's to be apprenticed out as a cobbler, he says, I'm a singer of songs. It's not really in me to be a cobbler. And the archon, archon's like a governor, right? Or a magistrate in the city. He says, well, uh, everyone here must toil. Um, and we get this this work ethic conversation, this debate about the work ethic, and it's quite well done here. So Ironon is the first to say that if you just toil, how can you be happy? Quote, and if ye toil, only that ye may toil more, when shall happiness find you? You toil to live, but is not made of beauty and song and if ye suffer no singers among you where shall be the fruits of your toil toil without song is like a weary journey without an end were not death more pleasing end quote it's a fancy way of saying you know bread and roses right we want bread but roses too yes toil may be necessary in a civilization in a society but if you don't have art you don't have culture you don't have beauty you don't have leisure right it's all really for naught and i totally agree with iron on here uh, although guess you know i i think him being expected to do a little bit of work doesn't offend me so much and i guess he protests a little bit too strongly against the idea of any work but his overall perspective that that people individuals need a balanced life between work and and pleasure and the reason we work the reason we invent the reason we innovate is to free ourselves from toil right to give ourselves you know people always talk about finding meaning in work but I think most of us agree you can't find meaning solely in work if you if you do that you're kind of limiting yourself right that's why so many of us do embrace hobbies and, and, and have an interest outside of work and we're encouraged to have that whether it's your vacation or our garden or our home or carpentry whatever it is or podcasting for that matter you know if we don't find meaning outside of work our life is sort of limited and dull and you know and a civilization's the same way if it's just one committed to work. I mean, even the Puritans. I was just been rereading about um, the Reformation, um, and actually at the same time I was reading some stuff on the Puritans in New England, and you know the image of the Puritans as just being about work and the work ethic. I guess that comes from Max Weber in a way, but it you know that do, that doesn't really describe their civilization. They they embraced sex, they embraced uh, drink to a degree, and 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 play. They weren't all you know, hard-nosed, God, you know, the threat of damnation kind of guy. I mean, they had a fairly balanced life, both religious and modesty and, and things in moderation, of course, being crucial to it. But they, they saw these things as gifts of God, and so they sought a more balanced life. Could contrast that to Virginia, where it was just about toil, ultimately to the point of slavery, where, where one of them's whole existence was, was labor for the, for the masters. So really important discussion here on the work ethic. And what are the bosses, uh, the, the archon of Teleth reply? So, he says, he doesn't even understand. He's a bit blanched by uh, Irinan's protest. He says, thou art a strange youth, and I like not thy face nor thy voice. The words thou speakest are blasphemy, for the gods of Teleth have said that toil is good. Our gods have promised us a haven of light beyond death, where there shall be rest without end, and cold coldness amidst which none shall vex his mind with thought or his eyes with beauty and quote and and he's basically giving the christian work ethic response here and, and i know i just said the puritans had a more balanced perspective on that but i don't know if lovecraft appreciated that and you know he's kind of building off the image and, and i think we do have sort of the puritan work ethic being criticized here or at least being um, caricatured by, by lovecraft here that oh we got we can rest when we're dead Right. Obviously, this was true, though. This was what was said to the slaves. Right. You're a slave on this world. But if you toil hard for your master in heaven, you'll be free. And, you know, good deal. And that's eternal. Right. What's a lifetime of slavery compared to eternal life? Um, so anyways, uh, this is, I think, an important part of the story. And something that really struck me because I'm always interested in the work ethic and, and anything we can do to break it down is good and that Lovecraft seems to be on my side here about the work ethic. Is I'll take it. I'll take it. So anyways, he gives up. He yep. doesn't want to be a cobbler. So he, he, he's given the choice of, of exile or, or labor and toil and he chooses exile. And so he goes out, uh, leaves Teloth, the city of stone, and he runs into Romnod, R-O-M-N-O-D, who's a young boy uh, who appreciates beauty and song as well? Although he is a Teloth, so he's he's like the the misfit of Teloth, um, and he's more spiritually akin to to Ironon. And he says, "I want to go with you. Take me with you. I'll be your I'll be your apprentice. I'll be your your sidekick. In fact, I may know some things." And he speaks of Unai, um, this this city, and he says, "This is a city of lutes and dancing. So maybe this is your 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 city of." of beauty and song uh, that we might be able to go to. So he says, okay, let's go on this voyage and and we'll go to Unai and maybe find this this place. Does Unai equal Arya? That's kind of a question here. Um, and Ironon answers and he gives a response that talks about his own previous voyages where he's been since as far back as he remembers. Again, his memory and dreams, I think, are all kind of looped together here. So I don't, think all of these voyages are literally uh, physical voyages I think they're they're dreamland voyages um, many of them that took place in his dreams itself so it, it's kind of like Polaris or the white ship in which the the dream seems to be uh, or the voyage seems to be coming through dreams um, so he says okay let's let's go um, we're not going to find any beauty here he says and we're not going to find any beauty nearby either we're gonna to have to explore quite far and he says i went to other places and he got a little paragraph here where he goes on these he gives these descriptions that remind me very much of the white ship in which you kind of go to different places that are all unfulfilling in some way um, he mentions i think three or maybe three or four places in fact some of these are places mentioned in dreamland stories like sarnath lomar um, the river eye I think all of, many of these are either in Polaris or the doom that came to Sarnath. But I, what I doubt here is whether he physically went to these places or he was also a dreamer that went to them. Um, so, anyways, um, let me just mention two of them. These, these are the two main ones he talks about. Is he talks about the land of Senara, and there they have art and beauty. Or they have art and, and pleasure, but they don't have beauty necessarily. Quote, I found the drum dairy men all drunken and ribble, and I saw their songs were not as mine, end quote. So he has to give up on them. So basically it's a low culture. They have a culture. It's not like Telos Teloth where it's all labor and all suffering and all work, but it's still a low culture and it's not something worthy of our of our adventurer here. You know, it's not it's not what he wants. He needs true beauty. And then he talks about the place where he goes to, he goes to um, Saria, X A R I. Um, oh, he travels down the river Saria to the annex wall Jarren, J A R E N. This is like a militaristic culture, and he's just driven away by soldiers who don't appreciate art either, um, like Teloth. For Teloth, it's work, I guess for Jara, it's, it's military, it's, it's a warrior cult, or whatever. And then he talks about going to Sarnath, going to the lands of Lomar. And he says, I found sometimes for listeners, but never Aria, A I R E, Aria, the city of marble and beryl, where his father ruled as king. This he hasn't been able to find. And, and then he cast doubt whether Unai is this place, because as if it was, you would know it because, you know, people would speak of it because its beauty is at such a transcendent level that, that it would be known. It wouldn't just be known as the city of Lutz, it would be known as this pinnacle of, of beauty. And, and, and art. Anyways, they go on their quest. And uh, during their quest, he tells the stories of, of Era, And and Rothman listens. And some time passes, significant time passes, because Ramnath grows up. In fact, he grows up and begins to age while Irinan is eternal. He, he's, he seems to be beyond time in some way. He never ages. And so Ramnath eventually becomes, starts to look older than he does. And... Um, which is, is kind of wild. So I, definitely on is some kind of symbol of, of like an ancient classical culture that's enduring into the present. Um, but, but you know, is but no longer really has a social role. Right. Um, no longer can be uh, co-opted by or like it's a dubious use to civilization. Right. That's why in teloth the only thing they can do for him is put him to work right so now i want to make a, an interpretation that's going to fit into when they finally get to unai what happens there is in this kind of capitalist culture right what is the role of beauty right so for the teloth it's much they're much more hard-headed and they see the only basically labor is all that's valuable right so there's really no point at all for art so the artist should just become a laborer, right? And that's why hes he really doesn't have a function there. He can't exist. If he were to do that, he would stop being iranon. He'd probably age. He would become just another person of Taloth toiling away with the work ethic, right? So that's your kind of extreme uh, early industrial culture that really sees no point of, of beauty at all and, and just sees toil, right? Maybe your Puritan culture if you want to have that that rather vulgar interpretation of the puritans which i think just as far as literature goes is fine to do okay but they reach unai and so let me say what happens when they get to unai so they get there and he immediately knows this isn't aria uh aria has like the golden domes this doesn't it's actually kind of a rather bleak city but quote well, but unai was the city of lutes and dancing so iran and ramnan went to down the steep slope that they might find men to whom songs and dreams would bring pleasure, end quote. So at least they're appreciated here. At least there's some value here. And he has maybe some hope that, okay, this isn't where I want to be. It's only one one-hundredth. It's not even a hundredth as fair as Arya. I mean, once you say that, like this, this place is only one one-hundredth of the goodness of the place I want to go, you've kind of set the standards that no place will ever satisfy you, right? It's kind of like essentially... A, a, a myth. It's like an Atlantis that you're searching for or something. But I think what happens here is really, really interesting. Is that the people of Unai just love him? So they love his songs. They praise him. They throw. They revel with him. They throw uh, laurels at him. He's, he becomes a celebrity. He's and he becomes actually seduced by fame. Iran becomes seduced by fame. So this is the much more clever capitalist use of of the art right which is to co-opt it to to make it a marketable commodity itself it just becomes an adjunct of of, of popular culture right and and it's something that 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 can can be profited from right the people of teleth are just too dull and stupid to to appreciate this use of art this aspect of art but um now You have this other world, though, this uh, scenario where you have the drunkard singing ribble songs. That's not commodified art. That's a vernacular art. Lovecraft doesn't see it as useful, so our our narrator skedaddles as soon as he can. But, Or, I mean, Iran skedaddles, not our narrator, but Iran skedaddles as soon as he can because it's a useless culture, but it's not commodified either, right? So... I kind of think maybe maybe it could have found some more value in that working class art. That's that's if I were to write this, there would have been something of value in in that culture. But it's Lovecraft writing it, so he doesn't. Uh, so in Una, he can keep his standards, I guess, of art and be appreciated. But he becomes just sort of a, a slave to the revelry. He just becomes seduced by popularity and fame. He's the celebrity. He becomes the celebrity. Um, so, and he seems to live there for quite a while. Right? Quote, and the king bade him to put away his tattered purple and clothe him in satin and cloth of gold with rings of green jade and bracelets of tinted ivory and lodged him in the gilded and tapestry chambers on a bed of sweet carven wood with canopies and coverlets of flower embroidered, embroidered silk. End quote. If Lovecraft was a more lurid writer, we can imagine, you know, uh, scantily clad uh, servants like catering to his every need, right? Or groupies, maybe, right? Groupies. In the modern world, there'll be groupies. So it's it's a bit vapid, but it's at least his, his art's appreciated, right? And he become become a celebrity. So what happens to the to him and really Ramna too is what happens to all celebrities is the king uh, brings in some new artists or there's a new wave, there's a new fashion in town, and it's literally the wild whirling dancers from the Lurian desert and the dusky flute players from Durian in the east. So I have to mention the. This, the race here i guess because that's what i've been doing in this podcast i'm just been trying to document all the elements of all the times race is mentioned in any way um, i don't think there's any reason to make anything of it but the, the flute players are dusky whatever that's all i want to say about it um but the key thing here for the point of the story is you know as soon as they come in iranon and ramnad are forgotten you know they're still famous they're still there they still live in a certain amount of splendor but um they get forgotten right and therefore ramnad begins to descend into alcohol abuse i mean it's really the modern like celebrity morality tale right if you were to say this about like a 60s band and make a biopic out of it it'd be the similar story right you find fame and then you have your little decline or you're you kind of you're not as hip anymore and so you turn to drugs and alcohol, and then one of the members of the band dies, and and then the guy has to go off on solo. That's literally what happens in the story. It's it's the same kind of tale. Um, but anyways, Ramnad becomes, quote, red red and fattened, and he starts to, like, do coke. Quote, quote he snorted heavily amid the poppied silks in his banquet couch and died writhing. While, while Iranon pale and slender sang to himself in a far corner. That The wording there is really weird. I mean... He kind of dies of a drug overdose, essentially, and, and you know, becomes fat and useless and drinking too much. But Irunan doesn't, he doesn't die with him. He, he's singing to himself. So we got kind of the, a growing gap between Ramnad and Irunan, I think. Um, he, he's kind of, and he ends up alone, of course. Ironan ends up alone. And so with Ramnad de- dead, he decides to go out into the wilderness again and go on his voyage. Um, it's not clear how much time passes in Unai. Clearly, a number of years, perhaps decades, passed um, of this decline. It's all told in just a few paragraphs. So when he wanders out, he's still young. He still looks young. Because this art, this culture, aria, whatever, is timeless. I mean, that's, I think, Lovecraft's point about this. These other things come and go. These fashions come and go. Fads come and go. Cities rise and fall. But but art, the true art, true beauty, is eternal and, and, and kind of objective, if you will. right? I. I i don't know how you might feel about this idea that there's objective aesthetic beauty i think that's kind of nonsense i think it's all subjective at least by culture if not for individuals uh, but nevertheless lovecraft seems to play with this idea here and that's how it works as kind of an allegory for the classical beauty so he wanders about and he's looking for other people who appreciate him i guess in the back of his mind he's still searching for uh, his homeland he still sings of it, he still dreams of it, but uh, he just finds what um, pleasure he can, what success he can in the desert, uh, you know, but he barely, barely doesn't find much. He finds, quote, gay-faced children laughing at his olden songs and tattered robe of purple, end quote. He had to actually return, I guess, to the king of Unai his nice robes and, and get back his purple robes. When he leaves Unai, he had to give that clothes back, I guess. Um, but anyways, now we get to the climax of the story. So he comes to this this old shepherd guy, finally, and he asks the shepherd, like, where can I find um, Arya, the city of marble and um, beryl? And the shepherd's like, you know what? I, I heard, I know about it. I've heard about it. Um, but not because I've been there, not because it's real, but... He kind of had this vernacular tradition once again, but this one's very specific. It actually has an origin. It's not kind of an amorphous, just belief among commoners. He's got a specific origin. And that is an old beggar boy uh, who they knew, who was raised in that community. So they knew he was born. So they knew none of this was true, but he he used to dream. He used to have these strange dreams. And then he would come out of these dreams and tell about the city. And he would talk about being a prince. And he would talk about all these different geographical locations and i think you know then he basically we're told at this point that Irenan is a dreamer right now it's not really explained why he doesn't age i think partially i think there's an eternalness to this beauty ideal that lovecraft is after here um but it kind of works for the story too because the man's like oh the the dreamer this this kid's name was Irenan. Right? he was my old playmate but but he left i've never seen him again right so the story is sort of just be- climaxes with this this return full circle. He's returned to where he's begun, and he realizes that basically getting there outside of dreams is impossible. So let me read the final paragraph entirely because there's a quite a bit going on here. Um, and in the twilight, this is right after the old man tells the story and reveals that it was iranon was the the one who invented Aria, or at least reported on it Via Dreams. So. And in the twilight, as the stars came out one by one, and the moon cast on the martial radiance like that which a child sees quivering on the floor as he's a rock to sleep at evening, there walked into the lethal quicksands a very old man in tattered purple, crowned with withered vine leaves and gazing ahead as if upon the golden domes of a fair city where dreams are understood. That night, something of youth and beauty died in the elder world. That's how the story ends. So the main thing here is he becomes old instantly. Iranon becomes old instantly once the, the kind of the delusion is broken, which is kind of really wild and, and, and kind of wonderful, I think. The last sentence, though, that night something of youth and beauty died in the elder world. Um, that apparently has opened up a lot of room for interpretation. So Klinger mentions an article uh, published in 1991 in Lovecraft Studies, uh, Who or What Was Iranon? And apparently, and I'm quoting Klinger here, he argues that the elder world mentions here is the realm of the great ones, and that Iron's apparent youth is the product of his distant relation to the elder gods. This relationship is further evidenced by the prayers of the old man who heard him sing and the nimbus that appeared over the singer's head. His ancestry, Humphreys contends, explains the otherwise inexplicable instant aging of Irinon when he learns the truth of his origins. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced of of that. I think I think You know his the death is the death of iranon and that with that is this dream this access to Arya and this ideal because what's left if iranon dies um romnad's dead you have a culture of a sort but in unai it's a commodified celebrity culture that that's very fickle very um capricious you have the rowdy vernacular culture of of Cyreni of you have uh, other than that you have societies that just reject culture altogether they're either military cults or you know ones that just embrace labor and see progress simply as in the realms of production um, there's really with his death there's really nothing left there's, there's this ideal dies with him I, I think that's really what it means I, I don't want to connect this story to the to the elder gods I mean the word he, he says elder world here I don't see the other evidence there um, you know, I guess this guy home for you sees a little bit more. Maybe I have to read a whole article to, to to judge that case entirely. I just don't fully buy it. I, I think this is it's doesn't need it. It doesn't need to be part of the, the Cthulhu mythos to to work. I think it works actually better as a dreamland story and I'd rather see Aranon as a dreamer who's in a fantasy world, right? Usually these dreamers are in our world and they get access to the dreamlands through through, you know through various you know you know while they're sleeping here we got a more fantasy world Teloth, which is more allegorical for our society because you have the different aspects of it kind of like the white ship does this too a little bit but um but then within that world which is kind of ours i think he's dreaming of he's he's accessing the dream ones he's accessing sarnath and um and he, he acts as some memory of, of Arya. So anyways, that's this this story. It's a really, really good one. And it's often overlooked. It was overlooked by me for many, many years when I started reading Lovecraft stuff. And you know, I'm glad I understand the story now because I think it, it tells us a lot. I think it's a lot about his philosophy of art, his philosophy of history, his feeling about modernity, his kind of disgust with, with modernity. It's kind of vapidness. And I think the greatest thing is he sort of really does predict here modern kind of the, the rock and roll celebrity culture here with, uh, with, you know, you have, you got the drug overdose death. You got the band comes into town and becomes praised and is famous for a short time, but it's quickly forgotten. And the new thing comes in uh, and this leads to the decline and the physical decline of the, of, of the characters, of, of, the, of the, of the, of the singers or the band members I mean, it just, it really rings true to me that way. I mean, it it could be, a, if you were to film this, it, that's how you'd film it, right? You'd film it as a, you'd focus on the Unaich section. and It would be about the decline of, a, of a, the hot band. Um, and then he kind of goes off solo at the end after the band breaks up because the, the one guy dies. I mean, that's that, that's how I would do it anyways. So I like it. I like it. It's a good story. I didn't think I would. I didn't think I would appreciate I thought I originally kind of saw it as a chore. Um, but I'm learning to appreciate the Dreamland stories a little bit more, even though I kind of ignored them for so long because they didn't really seem to connect to the, the themes of race and Atlantic history and that stuff that I'm interested in. But you know, I'm learning to appreciate them more. In fact, this story is probably written up more than any other story um, that I've looked at so far. So, but anyways, uh, let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of this really fascinating story. Um, You can send me an email, send me a Twitter, leave a comment below, leave a review on iTunes, however you want to reach me. I will uh, appreciate your your words and your thoughts about this story. Uh, If you have another interpretation, do you agree with Humphreys that this is part of the Cthulhu mythos in a way? Um, Let me know why, why am I wrong? So anyways, up next, uh, another kind of lesser known story, I think, maybe even less, more or less well known than The Quest of, of Ironon, and that's the Moonbog, right? One of the stories not included in either of the Klinger anthologies, unfortunately, because it definitely needs to be there. Um, it's a horror story, so why wouldn't it be included? It? It's, it's not a fragment, it's a fully fledged story. That's a big oversight. Right. I actually think all of, he should have, because the second anthology is so thin. He should have just included all the other stories. It would have only added like 100 pages of bulk to the, to the book. Um, and it's all public domain. There's no reason not to have done it. Um, but this one in particular, this one should be there. Hypnos, too, for that matter. Um, I think Hypnos is not included either. Yeah. Hypnosis isn't in this one either. That's, there's a couple stories that really should have been in the Beyond Arkham anthology. But this one, particularly because it has all the classic art, you know, Lovecraft motifs, the old castle, the cult, the cultists, vernacular traditions, galore, set in Ireland. Maybe that's why it wasn't included. I don't know. But it should have been. That will be the next episode. Um, I will talk to you then. and And, and yeah, I'm looking forward to it. See you next time. Thanks for listening.